You know, one of the, the primary tenets of all of Scripture is that God delights in using pure and holy people. Pure and holy people, He delights to accomplish His task. In other words, Second Chronicles 16.9, the eyes of the Lord roam to and fro throughout the earth to, seize those, to look for those He may strongly support those whose heart is completely His. See, God delights in those who are, are, are completely His. Those who are walking in a pure fashion. Who love Christ with all their hearts. This is why God chose David. He was a man after God's own heart. That's why Moses, when he was looking for help to relieve the burden of the judging responsibility, he looked for able men who are men of truth who hate dishonest gain. Their hearts being right with the Lord. So why the early church, in seeking those in charge of serving the widows' tables, sought men who were good of reputation, full of the Spirit and of wisdom. So why the character qualifications for those seeking to be elders and deacons in the church exist because God delights to use holy and pure vessels to accomplish His purposes. Over and over again in the Bible, you also see His condemnation for those who would walk in wickedness. When Saul failed to completely destroy Amalek according to the Word of the Lord, then Samuel told him, because you rejected the Word of the Lord, He has also rejected you from becoming king. When the shepherds of Israel failed in their shepherding task, the Lord said to them, Woe, shepherds of Israel, who have been feeding themselves! Should not the shepherds feed the flock? Behold, I am against the shepherds of Israel. And when Jesus confronted the Pharisees, He said, Woe, to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. He said, outwardly you look right. right. Outwardly you may have be righteous. Right? But inwardly you're full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. And the conclusion is that I'm not going to use you. Because God wants pure and holy vessels to accomplish His purposes. That's why Paul told the Ephesian elders, the leaders of the church, he said, be on guard for yourselves and also for the flock. Be on guard for yourselves. You might be a holy and pure vessel for the Lord. That's why Paul told Timothy, 1 Timothy 1, 4, verse 16, pay close attention to yourself and to your teaching. Look to yourself. Look to your own life. Right? Be an example of godliness. And in this way, you will be useful for the Master. That is the message of our text this morning. If you haven't done so already, I invite you to open your Bibles to 2 Timothy. The book of 2 Timothy, the New Testament, is one of the pastoral epistles. We've come to chapter 2. We've come to chapter 2, verse 20. Paul had written this letter to Timothy, his love child in the faith, who was facing discouragement, facing hardship, facing opposition, facing difficult times, facing the realities of persecution in his life. And Paul told Timothy to fan the flame, hold fast the faithful Word of God, endure the hard work necessary of all ministers of the Gospel, oppose those resisting the ministry, and fight the good fight of faith. So we put it there, right? Fan the flame within you of God's work and fight the fight of faith, of ministry, of doing what God has called you to do. As we find ourselves this morning here and deep into chapter 2, Paul is reminding Timothy of how to do this. How to fight this fight. It's as if he is a, he's a coach telling him how it is he should hold his hands when he fights this fight. 
what, what his technique should be, how he should train. And this is the way he should do it, beginning in verse 20. And really says, Timothy, don't engage in the wickedness around you. That's the wrong way to do things. You're a man of God, so walk in righteousness. This really spins off of verse 19. If you look there, it says, everyone who names the name of the Lord is to abstain from wickedness. That is, let all who profess to follow Christ steer clear of every form of evil and wickedness. God isn't isn't into using unrighteous people for His work. He uses righteous people for His work. And for Timothy to be useful to the Master, he's to walk in righteousness. And that's the title of my message this morning, is Useful to the Master. Coming right there from verse 21. The whole text is about this whole thing. How can you be useful to God? How can you be useful to the Master? Well, here's how to do it. Paul begins in verse 20 with an illustration. Now, in a large house... They're not only gold and silver vessels, but also vessels of wood and of earthenware, and some to honor and some to dishonor. Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from these things, he will be a vessel for honor, sanctified, there it is, useful to the Master, prepared for every good work. Now flee from youthful lusts and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart, but refuse foolish and ignorant speculations, knowing that they produce quarrels. The Lord's bondservant must not be quarrelsome, but be kind to all, able to teach, patient when wronged, with gentleness correcting those who are in opposition, if perhaps God may grant them repentance, leading to the knowledge of the truth, and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil, having been held captive by Him to do His will. Well, my first point is this, the illustration. That's what we see here. It's an illustration. Verse 20, Paul gives this illustration. He's picturing here this large house with lots of stuff. Furniture, utensils, tables, chairs, spoons, knives, ovens, storage containers, all made out of various kinds of materials. There are some vessels of gold, is what he says, and there are some vessels of silver, there are some vessels of wood, and there are some vessels of earthenware. Now, small houses back in those days usually didn't contain much of an assortment of these type of vessels, and they consisted of a room or two. But I got a large house. You use all these vessels for different things. You have some that help prepare the food, some that help store the clothes, some help wash the clothes, places to sit, adornments upon the walls. But you can divide them up, basically, Paul does, into two categories. There are some that are for honorable use, and there are some that are for dishonorable use. So of everything in your house, you can probably say, well, there's some for honorable use and some for dishonorable use as well. Now, this is begging for an object lesson, don't you think? Alright, so I, I looked around my house, and you know what? I couldn't find anything gold or silver in my house that would be appropriate. Maybe we need a bigger house. I'm not sure. So, um, couldn't, couldn't find, but I did find something that's totally in the spirit of what Paul has got. Oh. This is not gold. Okay, what is this, kids? What is it made of? What is it made of, Jared? It's glass. Or what do we call it? A special glass like this? What do we call it? China? Huh? Someone said, who said crystal? Points, points for you, McKaylee. McKaylee, Michaela. I always forget. McKaylee. I got it right. Okay, this is like a, a fancy precious bowl. It's been in our family a, a long time. Um, we got it as a, 
wedding present you were telling me. And um, it's very pretty, right? It's very precious. And so precious we, we don't use it very much, actually. <laughs> In fact, it's, it's still got some dust down here. It didn't, didn't wipe it out. It's been a while. In fact, SR saw this in my study yesterday, and he said, what's that? I said, well, that's something precious. He said, oh, so precious, I've never seen it before. We don't use it, do we? But anyway, you get the point, right? Here is a, a vessel for honorable use. What, what would you do with this, kids? What might you do? Yeah, Nathan, what would you do? What? Serve what? Okay, you didn't have an answer. It's just you always got an answer. We can put ice cream in it. Yeah, that would be one one great ice cream treat. What 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 do we what would we do with this? Anyone have an idea? Yeah, what would we do? Do we could put water in it? Yep, drink from it. We could do that. That wouldn't work so well. How about someone else? Yeah, Jello in it. That would be really good. That'd be really good. What else? What else would would you put in there, Colin? Fruit in there, Jared. What would you put in here? <laughs> okay, there's a vessel for honorable use. All right, I'll just put it up there. I hope it's hope it's not broken. I'm gonna be really careful, okay? All right. And then I looked in my house for something that was wood and earthenware, but maybe more that was um, a dishonorable use. So I, I found something that was dishonorable use. I tried to find something about about the same size. Do you know what this is? Steffi, you know what this is? A toilet. <laughs> exactly right. We call this affectionately the froggy seat. Now, I had this out this morning and was about to take it, and David, my four-year-old son, who still uses the froggy seat, saw it and said, What are you doing, Daddy? And I said, Well, I'm taking it to church. Oh, no, you can't. Because he thought, we always give our clothes away to... Um, who do we give our clothes away to? To Austin. And so she, he thought that we were giving this to Austin. But he said, you show it to Austin and he'll think it's really special. <laughs> so we'll show it to him. But he said, Daddy, I still need the, the froggy seat. So you guys know what the froggy seat's used for, right? Okay. Um, what, if, what if we put fruit in the froggy seat and served the froggy seat? At our dinner table. How would that work? Or jello. How about if we put jello in here and serve jello in the froggy seat? Or ice cream, right? We could have a lot of. You know what? That, I think you all get the point. And the point is, is Paul's point. Is that, that we have beautiful things for beautiful purposes. And we have ugly things for ugly purposes that's even shameful to kind of talk about, right? But this we will put on display. We will put it out for all to see. We will, we will use it. This we want to kind of hide away. I'm not sure any of you have ever seen a, a froggy seat. But it stays tucked away in, in our bathroom. This, the only way we will get rid of this is when Jared comes over and has dinner and breaks the thing. But we're going to keep it. But this, boy, as soon as we're done with this, we will be... My son is four years old and he's still using this thing. We've been trying. We've been working really hard. We've been bribing him. We've been... 
you know, he takes after his father. I'll just, I'll just put it that way. So, I had a few problems when I was a little boy too. <clears throat> My mother threatened that I would uh, have to bring a diaper to kindergarten. This is what uh, the deal was. But anyway, I think you understand the point. Is that here we have two vessels, one for honor, one for dishonor. But the, the point, in order to really understand this illustration, is this. Is that each of those represent people. <clears throat> some people are like a silver crystal glass. Some people are like the froggy seat. Some are useful for the things that God wants to, to use them for. Now, the things that are dishonorable, that's like, ministry is like dinner. Okay? Ministry is like presentations, pretty. There are some that are useful for that and others that just aren't useful to that. And, and there are people who are impure, walking sinful lives. They're not proper to be used of God. See, because God doesn't want froggy seats to be shepherding His church. He wants crystal bowls to shepherd his church. And that's the point of verse 21. Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from these things, he will be a vessel for honor, sanctified, useful to the Master. Now, here's where you see the illustration breaking down a little bit. Because a froggy seat will forever remain a froggy seat. We will never use a froggy seat at a dinner table. But with God's people, God's people can be transformed from froggy seats to crystal glass. And that's what he's saying. Cleanse yourself. Sanctify yourself. Be a crystal bowl. Be a vessel for honor. Be sanctified. And therefore, be useful to the Master, prepared for every good work. That's what God will do with those who have cleansed themselves. Timothy's here, a pastor in the ministry. And he's saying, you want to be useful, Timothy? Be a clean and pure vessel. Then I'll use you. That's what verse 21 says. All you need to do to become a vessel of honor is to cleanse yourself. That's what it says there, right? If anyone cleanses himself from these things. That is, you just need to abstain from wickedness, right? Verse 19, everyone who names the name of the Lord is to abstain from wickedness. It's the idea of this word here in verse 21. Be sanctified. That is to be, be cleansed, be holy, be set apart, be devoted to God. Now, we're not talking here about cleansed from your sin. Only Jesus can cleanse us from our sin. Paul's already talked about the Gospel and how the cleansing of sin comes. Chapter 1, verses 8-10. through 10. Here's the Gospel according to the power of God. He saved us and called us with a holy calling. That means God has saved us from our sin for a holy calling, for a sanctified calling. Not according to our works as He saved us, but according to His own purpose and grace which was granted us in Christ Jesus from all eternity, but now has been revealed by the appearing of our Savior, Christ Jesus who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the Gospel. Jesus is our Savior. He saved us from our sins. He's cleansed us. He has sanctified us from our sins. Now we are set apart then to, in some sense, purify ourselves. In some sense, to walk a holy life. To be a, a crystal vessel. He talked about the Gospel again in chapter 2. 
Remember Jesus Christ, verse 8, risen from the dead, descendant of David, according to my gospel, for which I suffer hardship, even to imprisonment as a criminal, but the word of God is not in prison. For this reason I endure all things for the sake of those who are chosen, so that they also may obtain the salvation which is in Christ Jesus, and with it eternal glory. He's saying, remember Jesus, crucified upon a cross, raised from the dead, and believe in Him and trust in Him and you will be saved. That's the message. The Gospel brings the cleansing that only God can bring. But notice Paul is saying here to cleanse himself. Paul's telling Timothy to cleanse himself. You can't cleanse yourself from your sins, but you can cleanse your behavior. You can cleanse your actions. You can cleanse your attitudes. Now, in the immediate context here, that includes, particularly chapter 2, verse 14, not wrangling about words. Chapter 2, verse 16, avoiding worldly and empty chatter because these activities lead to ruin. Chapter 2, verse 14. They upset the faith of some. Chapter 2, verse 18. You can't be useful to God if you're about wrangling about words. If you're engaged in worldly and empty chatter, arguing about this, arguing about that, always tearing down, never building up, God doesn't use people that way. Those who want to be useful to the Master need to be sanctified. They need to abstain from those things. And I know that this is Paul's heart for Timothy. And think about him in his ministry. He's discouraged. Paul left him there. He had assigned him to be a pastor of the church in Ephesus. He was having difficult things come upon him. Paul's trying to perk him up to succeed and be useful in the ministry. And how do you do that? By being a sanctified, useful to the master vessel. And, and the one who's like that will be prepared for every good work. And you never know what that work will be. It may be a work of actively helping people or serving people. I think about Carol Dodds. You know, she's been prepared for every good work. She, uh, you know, three weeks ago got in a motorcycle accident, hurt her legs in the hospital these past three weeks. And uh, she has been just a testimony of God's grace. I think, Michelle, you've been there lots, right? I mean, just I think her, her reputation kind of spread out throughout the nurses. And just they know and they see what she's done. They see Carl's love for her and just spending every night there with her and serving her and helping her. And they're prepared for every good work. Oh, it may not be going out and doing things, but it is in just in being an aroma of grace in their lives. And that is useful to the Master. Now here the application is only just beginning because we see the illustration in verses 20 and 21 and now we see application through the rest of the, of the section here. Verses 22 all the way down through 26. In verse 22 we see just application for life, for everybody, for every Christian. Now flee from youthful lusts and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. Here's a call to purity, a call to, to shun evil and to seek righteousness. And, and what's true of Timothy in the, the pastoral office is true of everybody. It says even there right at the end. right? You do these things, Timothy. You flee from youthful lusts and you pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace right alongside, right with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. And there you see this purity. Those who are seeking the Lord, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Right? For those who are pure and righteous and have a sanctified life and are seeking to please Him, they are doing this. And so you join them in this cause. It's an application for life for all of us. Verse 21, verse 22 rather. Notice the two verbs in verse 22. Now flee from youthful lusts, 
and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace. Flee and pursue. Of the King James has it. Flee and... Anyone have the King James? Probably not. Follow. Flee from these things and follow after these things. The word flee is fugo, which we get the word fugitive. It pictures someone running away from something, like, like running away from prison. He's out and out and gone and, and running hard, running fast, getting as far away from the penitentiary as he can. That's fugo, that's fleeing. Pursuing is really the exact opposite of that. The, the idea has of pursuing, like pursuing a prize or maybe hunting. Or I like to think of this as the posse word. You know, the, the prisoner has fled the prisoner, the prison, and now all the sheriff and his tribe are going to go and pursue the prisoner, just following after, look, looking every place for that prisoner. These are the, the, two, the two phrases here. On the one hand, we should flee from wickedness and we should hunt down righteousness. Paul uses these same two verbs in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 11. Now, but flee from these things after listening to all these types of sins which Ray read for us this morning. Flee from these things, you man of God, and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, perseverance, and gentleness. Practically a similar command, right? You, you flee from these things and you follow after these things. This can be great help to your Christian life. Just remember these two concepts. You want to flee from... You want to follow after. And you can boil all of your living down to this. You say, what should I do? Well, you should flee from sin and you should follow after righteousness. When you see sin, you should flee. You should flee like a, a scared kitty cat from a barking dog. Pew! You ever seen that? You should flee like a fox being hunted in a fox hunt. Let the fox go. Going to try to run away. When you see righteousness, you should follow after it. Like a tiger chasing a wildebeest in the African forest. you ever seen that? In your History Channel or Discovery Channel or whatever? Or like an athlete training for the gold medal. Like an FBI pursuing an escaped dangerous convict. So you should follow after righteousness. It's out there and you should pursue after it like a hungry dog. Now, too often, people don't treat sin like this. And they don't treat righteousness like this either. Uh, again, I think an object lesson. You know, this this should be good. Just let's let's take this chair. Okay, call it sin. Okay, and we are living here. And what do we often do with sin? We see it, and we kind of double take, right? Oh no, I, I shouldn't do that, right? Then we start thinking, though, about the sin. We start looking at it. And we start maybe inching over here a little bit towards the sin. Maybe, maybe we don't think it, well, it looks pretty nice, right? And um, as we come over here, we still say, I'm still pretty far from the sin. I'm okay, Right? I mean, I'm still hanging on over here, right? Look. Oh, I can't. And it just gets more and more attractive, right? 
Well, that's a neat, it's a neat color. Right? I love that color. And then you get on the edge. I haven't sinned yet. But maybe you make your way smooth, right? And then you, then you come down here. And maybe touch it. And this was, and you lick, hey, that's not so bad. Right? And you, and you see how people, like, they're in it and they, they're okay with it. And, and, you know, you start, start looking around. Oh, 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 hey, this is pretty nice. Now I know why people like this. Now I know why people fall asleep during Steve's sermons in the back row because they got those chairs there. Right? And pretty soon, what happens? Maybe you want to get up. Okay, now pretend I had Velcro on my, and it gets stuck, you know? And, and you're, you're, you're just, you're, you're stuck right around, and it's not, it's not getting away from you. And you say, how did I fall into the sin? Where was your problem? It all started back here with that first lick. Look. Right? When you did that, you say, no, there's sin. Right? And there's the barking dog. And I'm a scared kitty cat. And what should I do? I should just hightail it this way and start running this way. But too often, people ask the question, well, how, how close can I come without actually falling into sin? I mean, is this, is this close enough? Have, have, I, have I sinned yet? Have I, have I crossed that line? You need to flee from it. You know, too often I think that people do the same thing with righteousness. Okay, this is sin. Let's, it, it doubles. It's a good actor. Okay? Let's pretend that this is righteousness. Okay? And too often we're over here living in our sin. <clears throat> and we see the righteousness over there. And we know what righteousness is. <clears throat> you know, loving God, pursuing God, reading the Scriptures, being among God's people, doing good deeds. Helping others, self-sacrifice, that kind of thing. And, and we're over here and we look at that and we say, oh, why did they have to call me? Now I see a need. You know, I know, I know what I should do. I don't really do that though. I mean, yeah, you know, I know, I, I know I should, I, I should, should, should be doing this. I should be, I should be reading the Bible and I should be praying. But I like, you know, I, I don't know. I, well, I, oh, you know, someone's going to be there and see me, so maybe, maybe I'll do that. But, you know, I don't know if I have time to do that. I don't Should I? I, I don't know. Maybe I'll... I'll okay, I'll, I'll, I'll do it. This is okay. Sometimes we treat righteousness like that. What if I took a little candy, okay, and I put it on the chair and I said, okay, kids, I'm going to count to three and the first one there gets the candy. All right? And, and, and those in the back, right, like Asher and Ephraim, you really thought, I got a chance at this thing. You ready? One, two, three. What would we see? Coming over, kids over the over the pews, tackling each other, trying to get that piece of candy, right? 
It wouldn't be about this reluctance. Both those things are what we should do. We should flee from sin. We should follow after righteousness. Okay? hope the point is made. Too often, I think we, we fail in that. We need to flee from youthful lusts. I mean, when the sin is over there, I should, I should hightail it, take off, out the door. You think I'm exaggerating. Think about Joseph when he was seduced by Potiphar's wife. She grabbed his garment and said, come, lie with me. And remember, he took off, bolted outside the door, left his garment inside, because he knows better to leave the garment inside and to face the troubles outside than to succumb to temptation. And that's how we need to actively fight and engage in sin. Paul said, and Peter said, 1 Peter 2.11, Beloved, I urge you, aliens and strangers, to abstain from fleshly lusts, which wage war against the soul. And that chair over there, I mean, you should imagine sin, right? When you look at sin, it's like it's big bazooka pointing its, its nuzzle at you. And you're at war with sin. And you should see it like that and you should get away, but... Satan disguised himself as an angel of light. He says, oh, it's not so bad. Come and you'll be okay. No, we need to actively recognize the evil of our enemy and flee from him. Got a good picture of this recently. Um, a few weeks ago, our family found out that a distant relative of ours was in the hospital with alcoholic pancreatitis. Okay, Basically, Pancreas problems causing some, some troubles and having withdrawal symptoms. Doctors put her in a drug and goose coma so as to help her with the withdrawal shakes that she was experiencing. Now, in our house, we've chosen to abstain from alcohol. Um, a, a little bit. It's like how far to get to the edge, and there it is. Because you, Paul even tells Timothy, 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 23, right? Take a little wine for the sake of your stomach. It's not, it's not biblical to say you have to abstain, but for our, for our family, we've chosen to abstain as the best thing, right? Just let's, let's just not have that. We don't need it. I mean, I grew up in a home, by God's grace, had enough, none of that. My dad has told me before he's never been drunk. I've never been drunk, by God's grace. Yvonne grew up more in a home where alcohol was there, not a lot. Um, but her cousins, there's alcohol problems rippling through the family. We've just chosen to stay away from it. And it's foreign enough to us. Stephanie, right? Remember when you found out that she had drinking alcohol? Remember what you said? When she was in the hospital, Stephanie just kept saying, She drank alcohol? She drank alcohol? Krista, she drank alcohol. SR, she drank alcohol. Alex, she, uh, she did. And, and that's just to say, it wasn't a judgmental thing, Stephanie, for you at all. It's just that you're shocked because it's just not part of her experience, not part of her worldview. It's just not... And so, you know, we've had to explain to her that people drink alcohol. It's not a problem, though for some it is a, a great problem. Um, and we said that our problem with a relative, she's drank a lot of alcohol, a lot more than even you can imagine. But here's my point. Stephanie was just shocked when she thought about just alcohol. Because it wasn't, it wasn't, we also should be shocked like that when it comes to any form of sin. But you know what happens? We get dull to it. I challenge you, be away from television for a couple months and then try to go back and look at the commercials. You'll see them in a fresh light. I mean, I, 
I see that. My, my, my television is off from the Masters Golf Tournament. That's in April. It's off May, June, July, August. It starts to turn on again in September for the football season. And I'm, I'm shocked continually. How the, the, the commercials are just... Yeah, because I have this fast. I fast. I'm not... There's nothing else on except football. So now football's on and you see that. But, but you get desensitized to it. And easily we can. And so I just ask you, church family, do you hate sin? I mean, do you utterly hate sin? Do you see it and abhor it with a vengeance? Does it detest you enough that you want to run away? Get away. We need to hate sin. Particularly the sin we need to flee from here is called youthful lusts, verse 22. Now, people often think when they read youthful lusts, read sexual lusts. Now, I think it includes sexual lust there for sure. And sexual sin is something we all ought to run away from big time. Sexual sin never delivers what's promised. It always promises great satisfaction. There may be some pleasure for a moment, but afterwards it's always worse. It's a lie. It's never going to help. It's never going to deliver. Scars it leaves will never go away. When it comes to sexual sin, you should run as far away as you can. But I think there's some here in this room who need to heed that advice and get away. But I don't think that sexual lust is the only thing that Paul is speaking of against here because he uniquely calls this youthful lusts. And if Paul is only thinking of sexual sin, there are dirty old men who have plenty of problems with sexual sin. It's not just a youth problem. Here we're talking about things which are particularly youthful problems. Timothy is a youth. Chapter four, 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 12. Let no one look down on your youthfulness, but rather in speech, conduct, love, faith, and purity. Show yourself an example of those who believe. He, he was a young man, and, and with him came all sorts of tendencies to sinful, youthful passionate desires that are wrong. I think a big temptation for Timothy was to argue everybody about everything. He thought that in order to be the pastor, to be the most effective pastor, you just shoot everybody down. You, any argument that comes to the table, oh, I hear something, and you go and argue that. And Paul says, no, part of handling the Word is to know when to argue, when to combat, and when just to be silent, and when to avoid those things. Right? We've talked about them already. Chapter 2, verse 14. Remind them of these things and solemnly charge them in the presence of God not to wrangle about words, which is useless and leads to the ruin of the hearers. Right? When wrangling about the words come, you're not only to abstain from it, you're supposed to tell people not to wrangle about words. Or chapter 2, verse 16, avoid worldly and empty chatter. When worldly and empty chatter are going about, you just avoid that. You just steer clear of that. View that as much as you saw that sin there. Just get away from it. And we're also going to see that here in verse 23. Refuse foolish and ignorant speculations, knowing that they produce quarrels. Right? When foolish speculations are coming about, ignorant speculations, just, just thinking about things, right? Making major assumption upon assumption upon assumption upon assumption. You just refuse those things. That's not, that's not part of what you need to be about. I think that is a, a youthful lust, is to be argumentative. I know because of experience coming out of seminary as a young man at age 25, I was full of head knowledge. Spent three years dedicating myself to the Scriptures, studying them. I knew it was right, and I was equipped and ready to argue anyone who had a deep 
point. You can ask my wife about that. I just, you know, was cantankerous in some sense. Just wanted, I knew it was right, and I wanted to let people know that I knew it was right because I thought that was godliness. Godliness is discernment, right? No. But that was a youthful lust. I think there are a host of other youthful lusts that Paul may have had in mind. Maybe it's pride. Pride, where the young man thinks he's hot stuff. He's not lived long enough to see his own weakness. He's not proud of his strength or his might or his endurance or his power. Because when those things go away, yes, they will. Characteristic of youth. Maybe Paul had in mind impatience of young men. They expect others to keep up with them in their strength. And they haven't lived long enough to experience their own inabilities to realize, hmm, maybe others can't keep up because they're a different station in life than I am. I remember doing that as a young man also, just in seminary. I um, was freed up to do a, you know, I just studied the full time. And I was going to seminary with guys who were married with kids and trying to be involved in ministry. And I said some things that, looking back, like, you know what, that was a youthful lust, not understanding their situation in life. I mean, I can just imagine myself now going back to school, how much more difficult it'd be. And here's a young punk, right, who's 23 years old, he's got not a care in the world, spends his day in the Scriptures and the ministry. It's a youthful lust to, to think, hey, you want to keep up. Or maybe assertion of young men, right? Young men think themselves always to be right. And everyone will question. They haven't lived long enough to question their own wisdom. Haven't lived long enough to see some of their decisions they think are so right end up wrong and say, maybe I'm not so wise after all. I need help. Uh, There may be many more ready to entrap Timothy, but whatever they were is to flee from them and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace. Here are four things that he was to pursue. Righteousness, faith, Love and peace. Righteousness, just meaning doing right. When you see a wrong done, you want to make efforts at getting it done right. Um, just an example of this, you know, I don't and myself per se, but in our neighborhood, just a couple of doors down, there's a foreclosed house that um, it's been empty, I'm not sure, maybe three months or so, something like that. We've seen some activity over there recently, but kind of suspicious of what's going on. I'm not exactly sure. And uh, the other day when I, I, I left for a, a meeting, I saw letters KKK on the garage door. It just stirred within me, just a, a boiling sense of, of injustice is being done here. I can't believe, well, I can believe, but the racism that is here in our neighborhood it was too much for me. And so I went out and when I came back, um, or maybe I'm, I'm not sure what the timing of that, but I, it kind of looked, it was kind of faint, kind of looked, I thought it was dirt. So I got some soap and I went over to the neighbor's house, going to wipe it off, but it was paint, so I couldn't wipe it off. Then I went to some meeting. By the time I came back, it was painted over already. Praise the Lord. But, but that's the sort of thing we ought to seek. We ought to seek righteousness. That is unrighteousness. And we ought to follow after righteousness with every spirit of the being that we have. Fairness, equity, Across the board, that's personally, that's socially, all across the board, that's pursuing righteousness. Faith. We should pursue faith. Pursuing an active trust in the Lord. Where when we rise in the morning, pursuing the Lord by faith, right? Offering up a quick prayer, a more dedicated prayer. When faced with decision, right? Trusting the Lord in faith because we're pursuing God by faith. We can't see, but God, will you give us wisdom to see when dealing with a difficulty in our life? 
seeking the Lord for wisdom and strength, when facing a trial in our life, trusting God's good hand in the midst of the trial and God's good hand at sovereignly ordaining the trial for us, that's faith. When we sin, confessing our Lord to confessing our sins to the Lord, believing the sacrifice of Christ is sufficient for that. That's that's faith. When our faith is weak, praying like the, the man did who had a demon-possessed son, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. That's faith. Laying our heads on our pillows at night, commending ourselves to the Lord, saying, God, You've been faithful throughout the day. I trust You'll be faithful this night. Help me. Just That's what pursuing faith means. It means, means taking every circumstance of life and sifting it through the, the grid of faith. We should pursue love. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things, 1 Corinthians 13. Love is, is, is active about seeking the welfare of our neighbor. We see our neighbor in need and we help our neighbor. Someone wrongs us, we are patient with them. Someone hurts us, we are kind to them in return. When you wrong a friend, you seek reconciliation in your friendship. When you hear of difficulties in the lives of others, love wants their best and so love will to God for their best. That's what love is about. We're also called to pursue peace. That's peace among all. Hebrews 12.14. We saw that. Pursue peace with all men. That's everybody. We ought to, we ought to be peaceful people. Romans 12.18. If possible, so far as it depends upon you, be at peace with all men. 1 Thessalonians 5.13. Live at peace with one another. Uh, of anybody, Christians ought to be peace-loving people the character of those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. We've got to pursue peace, right? When, when there's opportunity for peace, we ought to pursue it with whatever we can. And that's precisely the contrast that Paul brings here in verse 23. Rather than discord, we ought to be those who refuse foolish and speculations knowing they produce quarrels. So stay away from the quarrels and pursue the peace. And at this point, I believe in 23, 24, 25, 26, Paul changes the focus of application from just a general application applicable to us all, all who call upon the Lord from a pure heart, particularly to pastors and those in the ministry, though certainly it extends to all of us. It doesn't say, oh, Timothy, you should refuse foolish and ignorant speculations knowing they produce quarrels, but everybody else can quarrel. No, it's not the point. But particularly here, it's more a pastoral role where there's dialogue and there's discussion and there's teaching and there's correction that the quarrels ought to be resisted. And again, we see the same thing cropping up again. Not arguing about words, not quarreling and bickering, fighting and arguing. And particularly here, it's about foolish and ignorant speculations. So I thought about what are foolish and ignorant speculations. You know, back then they had Jewish myths that like I said, pile assumption upon assumption upon assumption. I think today some foolish and ignorant speculations might have to do with the return of Christ. All Christians believe that Jesus will return to the earth. And all Christians believe that Jesus will judge the wicked, reward the righteous. All Christians believe that those who believe in Him, Jesus will gather to Himself and protect forever at His second coming. There is much that we know about the details of Jesus' coming. You can read through even the book of Revelation has a bunch of details all about that. It begins with the revelation of Christ. He's coming. The Alpha and the Omega forever. At the end, the Lord Jesus, come quickly. It's all about the return of Christ. Everything is there. So we know much about the return of Christ. But let me say, there's much that we don't know. 
And there's much also that whenever you take the book of Revelation, lots of assumptions, lots of guesses form to, you know, these, these specific charts and these things, exactly what's going to happen. And here's how it's going to be. And I just say a lot of that is speculation. And with speculation, I mean, you can hear somebody out, but don't argue. Don't quarrel about that. That's not worth quarreling about. Let's, yes, let's think much about the return of Christ. Yes, let's hope much about Him. But let's not take assumptions and build complete doctrines upon that we're going to die for upon the exact timing of the return of Christ lest we become foolish like Harold Camping who says the end of the world's going to happen this month. It brings shame upon the name of Christ. You make these predictions, they don't take place. Here's another example. The Lapsarian Controversy. Some of you may have never heard this. This is good. But there's lots of theological debate and discussions and arguing about which order God decreed the world. See, God decreed that He would create. God decreed to permit the fall. God decreed to, to provide a sacrifice to save some. God decreed the elect who He would save. And theologians got these things in their mind. I mean, that there are those things, there's no doubt. And then theologians say, okay, now, which came first in the mind of God? Did he, let's see, did he choose his elect before he permitted the fall? Or did he permit the fall and then choose the elect? Or did he decree the way of salvation and then choose the elect? Or did he choose the elect and then decree the way of salvation? And I'm telling you, the books are written about this. The Lapsarian, the fall controversy, how it is. And they go round and round and round on these things. And here's my take. It's good to consider these things. But as it brings in speculation, just drop it there. Okay? Um, could it be that God, rather than thinking about these things logically, maybe has... I mean, we can keep one thought at a time. For us, things are logical. But God can think a billion thoughts at the same time. He can hear all our prayers at the same time. Could it be that God decreed all these things at once and there's no order of these things? Perhaps. We just don't know. It's just, that's just, a, I give you an esoteric mystery of theology that's out there it's like, you know what, let's not argue about those things. Now, that's not to say there aren't times we ought to correct others. I'm not throwing away doctrine. not throwing away that we ought to contend for the faith. Verse 25 even tells Timothy, you correct those who are in opposition. So there are people who are in opposition and Paul tells Timothy to correct them and deal with them appropriately. And, and there have been issues where we need to be in opposition against them. Recently, Rob Bell pastor of megachurch Mars Hill Church in Grand Rapids recently wrote a book on hell called Love Winds where basically he becomes a universalist and he says everyone's there. I'm not sure if he actually says that but he says could it be that everyone's there? And there's been much discussion in the evangelical world several words have, have written about it um, where one, one says right in the red love wins it's God wins. <laughs> I mean that's a good perspective on heaven and hell. And when people have been resisting a fight against God, God will be the one to suppress them with everlasting torment. Uh, but there's been a lot. And, and, and Rob Bell, I mean, he's, he, he's, he's a megachurch pastor. Thousands are following him. And now he's got some fame in this book. And he's got, you know, just a very influential guy. But that is just flat out wrong what he said in that book. And he's been contended and opposed very well. There are rising debates about the Trinity you may hear this in upcoming days. Um, debates about uh, God and is He 
God in three persons, right? That's where it is. Or does God appear in three different modes? It's called modalism, which is heresy. You cannot be a Christian and believe in modalism. That God the Father manifests Himself in Jesus at times and in the Holy Spirit at times. I mean, that's missing it about God. No, it's that God is three persons at the same time. The triunity. It's a mystery. But it's not three modes of the same person. That is rank heresy. And it's creeping into the evangelical world a bit. And there are people in Rockford who believe this. Particularly, it's Pentecostal holiness, monotheistic flavor of things. That ought to be opposed strongly. Error needs to be corrected. But Paul tells Timothy how to correct it. And I think what's important here is to... To correct in the right way. I know I've corrected in the wrong way many times, and this is a this is a help to me. And as you see error, and you need to confront people, you correct them with these things. He gives us four pieces of advice. The hallmarks of a good servant of God. In fact, this is why I think it's turning to maybe a pastor more. It says the Lord's bond servant, right? The the one who's serving the Lord in ministry must not be quarrelsome, right? You don't you don't quarrel with people, but here's what you do. You are, first of all, kind. You are kind. Too often Christians come across harsh, unloving, and mean-spirited because we know the truth. And, and the world needs to know and it, it needs to hear this truth. And so sometimes we just bash the truth out there. Right? They need to hear it! And we're not kind. For you, I just think Jesus... He spoke very, very difficult things. He did so with an air of kindness. Now, not every time he was peaceful. He made himself a whip, drove out the money changers of the temple, overturned all their tables, okay? That was righteous. That was pure righteous anger. That was the exception to the rule, however, I do believe. I think the rule is that he was very kind in his words. That's why sinners were drawn to him. That's why sinners loved him. Because he was kind. He, he was the friend of sinners. Jesus' friend of sinners. There's a first care. We should be kind in our correction. Second, it says the Lord's bondservant must be able to teach. Here is a, this is more of a skill and ability, but too often Christians come across in a confusing way. They have lots of facts and reasons in their head that they fail to persuade. But I think this here, able to teach, just means persuade clearly, concisely. That's what that means. That's more difficult. That's a giftedness issue there, I think, some with it. We need to be kind. We need to teach with clarity. Thirdly, we need to be patient when wronged. The assumption is here that we will be wronged. And that wrong will come upon us because of others, what they say, what they do, what they believe. We need to correct them. Well, in correcting them, we still need to be patient when they've done wrong to us. It's not an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. It says whoever wants to take a cloak, you give them another. Give them your tunic also. Once you go one mile, right? Wronged you, made you go a mile. You'd be willing to go another mile. You'd be, be patient when you are wronged. I think too often Christians demand instant change right now. But you know what? It takes time to change people. People don't just change overnight. Rare is the case where you'll be able to show someone who's in error they, where they clearly change their mind. No, it happens at times. Sometimes they just say they change their mind, but really in the back end they haven't. It just takes time to process through things, to, to process through the errors, to, 
to process through admitting their errors because it takes repentance and repentance is hard. Often change takes place over years of hearing the truth, seeing your example, thinking through the implications of everything. So when you're wrong, just be patient with those people. Put forth truth kindly, clearly, patiently. And here it is, fourth one, gently. It's kind of similar to being kind, I think. Similar words to get the, the feel for the attitude he's talking about. He's talking about being gentle. Now, I, I haven't done a study on this, but this would be very interesting. If we get some, whatever, survey guy who's going to call a thousand church people or whatever to find out how they came to Christ, and what, humanly speaking, drew them to Jesus? Was it the loving, kind, patient, gentle neighbor who brought the Gospel to them and showed acts of love over a long period of time, who was there when the, the crisis came in the life, who brought the, the words of help? Was, it, was that what led you to Christ? What, was it the constant example of the patient and gentle parents who shared the Gospel with the kids, gently lived before them over years? Is that what ultimately drew them? Was it a preacher who was gentle and and relentlessly pointed people to Jesus that ultimately drew them? I'm painting this picture. I think Paul is painting for us of, of, of the people who are kind and gentle and patient. Or, humanly speaking, did people come to Christ because of the yelling preacher on the street who told them to bow the knee to Jesus? Or was it the harsh parent who always pointed out the sin? Look at that! You're wrong there! You're wrong there! You're wrong there! So the kids cower. Was that... You need Jesus! Is that what brought people to Jesus? Or is it a hellfire brimstone preacher who, who scared people in coming to the kingdom? Now, God certainly uses those means. But which do you think God uses more? Which do you think is more useful to the Master? My guess is that God most often uses kind and gentle and patient messenger to accomplish His purpose. And, and that is what the whole text is about, right? You want to be a, a vessel useful to the Master. And in fact, that's where verse 25 is going, about, about being useful, right? You, the Lord's bondservant, must not be quarrelsome, but kind to all, able to teach, patient with wrong, with gentleness correcting those who are in opposition, if perhaps God may grant them repentance leading to the knowledge of the truth. And they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil, having been held captive by him to do his will. Here's what I'm picturing. I'm picturing people who are snared by the devil. They are captivated by him. They are believing a lie. They are putting it forth. And along comes gentle Timothy to show them their way and their error. They snap at him and he returns a gentle answer which turns away this wrath. And he's patient with them. And they are angry with him and he is kind back to them. And they don't like it and resist it. And he just time after time just pours his shadow of shower of blessing upon them. And God says, that's the situation which you'll be useful that God may, in that circumstance, then bring the person to repentance. I think that's how the passage reads. I mean, ultimately, it comes down to God. It's not human people who are in charge of this. It's, it's maybe, just perhaps, God may grant them repentance. But you do things God's way to receive God's blessing. And God may grant them repentance. And the Scripture is clear. God's the one that gives repentance. Okay? It's not in of ourselves. 
But he uses means, and I would contend he uses the kind, patient, gentle messenger to get that means accomplished more often than not. So you want to be useful to the Master? Let's avoid quarrels. Be kind to all. Let's be clear in our teaching. Patient when wrong. Let's be gentle. And perhaps we may persuade people out of darkness and into light. Um, I want to close my message this morning with some emails that really models this, I think illustrates it, and brings it to a point. In recent days, I've been involved in a situation with other pastors in town. You probably are oblivious to this. I'm pretty oblivious to this as well. But Larry Pauley, pastor of Elam Baptist Church, writes this. And this was a couple weeks ago, I think. He said, Brothers, today I had brought to my attention some rather distressing news. It seems that the Rockford Public Library is hosting and promoting a psychic, psychic teen awareness workshop with Mark Dorsett on Saturday, December 13th at the main library in Rockford. According to the website and brochures available at various branches, teenagers 13 to 17 years old are invited to join Spirit Communicator Mark Dorset as he teaches an introductory workshop to help teens to connect more with their own intuition and higher guidance. Mark will also provide instruction on communicating with loved ones in spirit with a special emphasis on spiritual ways of protecting their energy. Larry then continues, I realize not all of you men are directly within the city of Rockford. And, by the way, when he says, all you men, these are all the guys who came and preached for us Sunday night. Okay? That's the circle, kind of, that we're in, we're talking about. However, I know that many of your folks do live in the city. Uh, those who live in environs may well have tax dollars going to the library system. All of us should be outraged. I wondered if perhaps you would want to band together in a letter calling for the cancellation of this nonsense in a private conversation with an attorney affiliated with Elam, the head of the library has already said that they want to steer clear of religious matters, yet they freely advertise this sham as providing a special emphasis on spiritual ways of protecting their energy. Any advice, ideas, thoughts? And so that got out there. And uh, basically I said, yeah, let's, let's do something. Bob Bixby, typical Bob, just jumped right into the mix. He wrote this letter for us. Okay, Here's what his letter said. Dear Mr. Novak, I don't know if he's president of the board at the library. I'm not sure. I left a message in your voicemail because I prefer to discuss potentially divisive issues in person so that tone can be heard. Do you hear that? Gentleness, patience. Something that's too easily missed in email communication. I hope you understand I'm not looking for a fight, but my own conviction about culture, religion, freedoms, and philosophy compel me to, at the very least, try to enter discussion with what I think to be a reasonable question. Is the Rockford Public Library... If the Rockford Public Library wishes to steer clear of religion, why do they promote a supernaturalist like Mark Dorset? My understanding is the library would be hosting Dorset on December 13th. Personally, I would have no problem with this if the library also allowed me, a Calvinistic Protestant, after the tradition of our American forefathers, also to speak and offer guidance to young teenagers. However, I suspect that the library would be in battle with hostile opposition if a traditional Christian were to be promoted by the system. I can tolerate, albeit sadly, the fact that we are no longer welcome in the public discourse. However, many of us are increasingly vexed by the seemingly duplicitous behavior of American public officials that shuts us out of the public sector on the premise of separation of religion from state, and they give a place to other forms of religion, apparent or alternative. Religion is religion. Mark Dorsett literally promotes connecting with the spirits of deceased loved ones. How is that any more sensible than the fact that we Christians believe in a resurrected and living Lord that we can communicate with Him through prayer? We only make that claim about one person. Dorset, with his privatized brand of religion, claims that he can connect you 
and me and anyone else to the spirits of our relatives. Religion is the belief in the supernatural and the appeal to a higher being. Whether Allah, Jesus, or the guidance of dear Grandpapa, it's religion. Your promotional that I saw recently said, Higher Guidance, it's a capital G. That's religion. Though I, a pastor of a small church, am very well connected in the city, um, with many pastors of larger churches, I know for certain that this story will not go away quietly because many are getting weary of traditional religion getting the shaft. I prefer to discuss, debate, and argue peaceably and quietly. Perhaps I totally missed the point. Perhaps there's rationale that has escaped me. Perhaps I need to see your library's perspective. Perhaps it would help you uh, if you understood ours. Presently, however, I write only for myself, respectively, Bob Bixby. Great letter, huh? To see how kind he was, how gracious he was, how even maybe I misunderstood. Here's what he, he laid it out clearly. After some time back and forth, he met with the board of the library. This was just like last week, maybe Wednesday or Thursday, I'm not exactly sure. He, he wrote then to all the pastors he was involved with this. He said, our meeting was cordial and transparent. The letter you saw was distributed to the board of directors and they actually discussed it at their meeting. They made a decision per the letter to cancel two programs they felt were preachy with the paranormal. However, they told me frankly that the paranormal things are by far the most popular things that they do. Sad commentary on our city. Apparently, they've been getting some calls and had largely dismissed them, but were persuaded by the viability of my argument that Dorset Spiritism is in fact a religion. Not. You can read between the lines here a little bit. I'm guessing that angry people, maybe angry Christians, were calling him up, telling him to stop. Bob took the Second Timothy 2 approach of gently approaching, asking for dialogue, and he got a hearing, and the angry Christians didn't. If they allow one religion, they would need to become an open forum for other religions, something they're disinclined to do. So I had the opportunity to explain the Christian view of the spirit world is that it is real and the only spirit with whom we communicate is God. The intrigue in mediums is a rebellious alternative to the provided mediator, the man Jesus Christ. And he is the only mediator. In other words, mediator or medium. The board decided on a compromise. They would not have paranormal programs that were instructional, but they may have some that are informational, like the very popular haunted house tour that is done each year. I personally have no power and little leverage, but I I did acknowledge the extremely fine distinction and told them I appreciate their effort to come our way a little bit. The fact that two programs were canceled was far more than I expected. In the end, I don't know how much was accomplished, except it was a great witnessing opportunity because my whole reason to object was essentially for the sake of the gospel. I did learn that we ought to encourage people to vocalize their objections in kind and forthright ways. We shouldn't be belligerent and unreasonable in our demands, recognizing the sad reality that we are the minority among people who prefer the profane and the demonic. And he signs it, Bob. I know that took some time, but I think you'll appreciate the approach of what he did. I thought that was exact illustration here. We were people snared by the devil, and yet Paul telling Timothy to come gently, kindly, patiently towards people. I think it's a great example how to persuade those in opposition to our ministries. And then, what even he said, I'm not sure what it did, but it provided an opportunity for the gospel. He could easily have said, if perhaps God may grant them repentance. It just comes flowing out of this text. And I just say to us, let's trust the Lord who in the clutches the devil as followers of Christ by gently persuading them in the ways of Christ, living lives of example, 
before people and thereby being useful to the Master and pleading that He would use us to accomplish His task. Can you say amen? Let's pray.